Our main speaker for this evening, Marianne from Huntington Beach. Wow. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Marianne. I'm an alcoholic. Wow. Thank you for that warm welcome. I really appreciate that. Um, I'll start off with a bunch of thank yous. Uh, Chris, for doing the 10 minutes. Uh, that was very impressive. Thank you. Danielle, who drove me down, and Danielle not only drives, she brings good snacks. So we had, we had good snacks. And then Rachel, thank you for coming. As, did I say that right? Did I just do a blank? Michelle. Sorry, so I so like I um, I sponsor Danielle and she sponsors Michelle, and so we have the little chain going, which I really like. Um, we're taught to share here in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like today, and I'm going to try to stick to that. And I have my watch in hand because we have a time limit, and I always like, okay, I've got ten minutes to uh, do this, I've got ten minutes to get sober, and ten minutes to do um, say what it was like. So anyway, I'm going to try to stick to that. And I'm going to start off by telling you at our home group, um, we many of the members, most of them will tell you uh, their sobriety date, their sponsor, and the home group. So my um, my uh, home group is Bellflower Big Book Group, and my sponsor is Sharon Brooks, and she has about 40 years of sobriety. And uh, my sobriety date is um, August 31st of 1981. And as I look around the room, I think, how many of you weren't even born in 1981? Oh, my gosh. Oh, I feel like a relic. But anyway, and then I also want to tell you that when I came out, to California at nine years sober, I found that some of the people in our group kept track of their sobriety dates. And so uh, when I first got sober, we'd keep track maybe, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, you know, maybe a year. But then after that, you know, we really didn't. And some of these people were keeping track of their days, like years into sobriety. And uh, a man from our group, uh, because I came out in nine years, added up the days for me so I could start doing that. And he said, you know, it's good for me to be aware of my physical sobriety, and I really like that. So I can tell you that today I am sober 12,144 days. And surprised me, I'll tell you. I wasn't expecting that. And uh, also, what was interesting is that when I first got sober and I'd gone through um, a treatment center and they gave us the uh, 24-hour-a-day book, and so that, again, the people in our group, they record these days in the 24-hour-a-day book. Well, I had put my book away a long time ago because when I first got out of the treatment center with my little book, but I wasn't staying sober, and so I would hop into bed with a bottle of something, I don't know, wine or vodka, whatever, and then my 24-hour-a-day book, you know, and so the book was getting all stained with, you know, um, whatever drops from whatever I was spelling, and so at one point, I guess I thought it was the book's fault, and I put that away, and uh, so now I have my book out again, and I'll tell you after 33 years that um, those stains are almost all gone. The book is looking good again, so I read that I read that every day. So anyway, um, I was born and raised in Missouri, St. Louis, and um, I am uh, come from a Catholic, oh my gosh, how Catholic, Catholic German family. My mother is one of six children. She's the only one that got married. All the rest are nuns and priests. So to say Catholic is, is like Catholic is 
much as you can get. And so I was always embarrassed. I mean, in the beginning, I was very embarrassed of that, that, uh, you know, our family would be like that. And, um, you know, somehow in sobriety, somewhere along the way, I learned to appreciate those nuns and priests. They were living in a way that I never lived, and they seemed to be content and fulfilled, and that was something I knew nothing about. So anyway, uh, my mother, um, she had four of us children. I'm the oldest, and I am alcoholic. I am followed by two sisters who are, by the world's definition, normal. And then I had a brother who uh, was alcoholic, and he died at age 50, and he was um, he was found alone in his house. He'd been dead for a couple days, and the but the um, the death certificate says a gastrointestinal bleed. So you know, again, I'm the lucky one. And I always, when I think of my family, I think of um, how in the doctor's opinion it talks about the phenomenon of craving. And when I hear the phenomenon of craving, I think about the fact that I am alcoholic. I cannot take that first drink. My two sisters can. They can take it or leave it alone. They've never had, you know, they never had any problems. In fact, my one sister recently has had some anxiety problems, and she was telling me about them. And I said, oh, well, I had those, but you just take a drink, you know, and I I don't see the problem. And she wouldn't think of doing that, and so she has to find her own way. So anyway, um, so... Um, there, you know, there really isn't much to tell of a home life, but again, the words, again, from the doctor's opinion, you know, we are restless, irritable, and discontent. And I can tell you, you know, from the time as far back as I can remember, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And I didn't like anything that was going on in that family. We were, uh, we lived in an old house. I thought it should be new. We, I had to go to an all-girls Catholic school. I thought that I should be going to a school with boys. We, um, if they took us on vacation, that's not where I wanted to go. If they took us out to eat. That's not where I wanted to eat. My mother sewed our clothes, and I did not like the way she dressed us. So I was a pretty unhappy camper. And if you would have asked me, um, well, what do you want? I would have said, I want to be free, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And uh, that was pretty much my attitude, except the way I live my life. I um, I got married at 20, and that was not the solution to I want to be free. And I would, you know, do I am telling me? And um, that, that marriage, um, and I can tell it today, it's not much emotion. It was it was an abusive marriage. I didn't know anything about that sort of thing, and um, and it began a life of you know keeping secrets. And uh, and then up until that point, I really. Um, I had never felt the effect of alcohol, but so I married him, and we had a plan. You know, and the plan was, you know, I would get pregnant, and I would stay home, and I'd be a loving mother, and uh, um, we would, you know, we would have these children, and with a little picket fence, and it did not turn out like that at all. So, um, first of all, I couldn't get pregnant, so we decided that we would adopt we would adopt, uh, turned out to be a little boy. And um, things started happening all about this time. It's like all of this stuff was happening together. So the marriage is not going well. I can't get pregnant, so we'll adopt the child. Um, and uh, and then uh, Jeff came, and, uh, that, and it wasn't what I wanted. I mean, I had thought I was going to be this loving mother, and I wasn't a loving mother, and he wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I mean, it's almost, you know, I hate to say it like a little puppy, you know, and they're so cute, but then they need to be fed, and they need to be, you know, take them to school, and you need to dress them, and they require a lot of attention, and I, you know, wasn't what I thought it should be. And... Um, 
I started having some um, I started having some problems. I don't know in those days. So I'm talking now the 70s. I mean, they didn't have words for things. It was you know we didn't have like a schizophrenic or polar disorder or ADHD or AAHD or whatever all those letters are. We just you know I just um, I wasn't very comfortable and I found myself you know acting bizarrely and then I was having I think today you would call them an anxiety attack or a panic attack. And so I had started going to a psychiatrist about that. And uh, while all of this was happening, I was invited to a uh, shower. And because I always was a very nervous person, I don't eat before I go out. And I had gone to the shower, and someone handed me a martini. And that was the first time I'd ever felt the effect of alcohol. And that was, you know, like probably in the afternoon. I hadn't had anything to eat. And I would say, you know, I'm guessing like, what, 10 minutes maybe. That um, that martini did for me what that psychiatrist said was going to take him a couple years. He was like, oh, yeah, if you, if you see me a couple, you know, we can make you comfortable. Well, I'll tell you, that martini did it like in 10 minutes. And I, again, I, <laughs> it's like, you know, who needs a psychiatrist when, you know, when you've got your martini? Martini. And um, so that was really the first time that it ever felt the effect of alcohol. And it just seemed like all those anxieties that I had and all my worries and all of that were going to go away. I would never have been able to tell you that before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. But once I got to a meeting and I heard somebody f- talk about the effect of alcohol on them, immediately I knew that that's what had happened to me and I could tell you when it had happened. So, um, so I. Um, I began to drink really every day. I wasn't like, oh, you know, that felt really good today. You know, maybe next weekend, you know, I'll try another drink. It's like, oh, my gosh, I had so many anxieties that needed to be taken care of that um, I immediately um, began to drink every day. And I, my husband wasn't around very much. I think he was already pretty disenchanted with me. And um, I started to buy my own liquor and... Um, and uh, and I began to just, I needed it like all the time. And I have to tell you, I thought for years I would describe myself as a martini drinker. I mean, it has this allure of, you know, the tall lady in the black dress and the beautiful glass. And I, you know, I would tell anybody, oh, yes, I am, a, you know, I, I drink my martinis. And, you know, what happened was there was no black dress. <laughs> there was no, there was no, there was no olive. There was no vermouth. And pretty soon there was no glass, a real. There was no glass. It would just get the bottle, get it in, and get it in your system. And, you know, and very quickly I learned that the alcohol would not only take care of the anxieties, it would take care of the frustration with my husband, it would take care of, you know, feeling the kind of mother that I was, it took care of headaches, it took care of stomach aches, it took care of everything. And so, you know, for I probably had a little bit of a run, you know, where, you know, things were really good. But I might as well tell you right now, I never turned into a party girl. I have no fancy stories to tell you, nothing to keep you on the edge of your seat. Or da, da, da. It was just plain old drinking and just trying to get through the day and trying to live this life that I thought I should be living. So, you know, when one child doesn't really work for you, you get another one. And so we got another one. And so now we have a little girl, Christine. And this might be a good time to tell you that despite what I say, they today are two, surprisingly enough, well-adjusted children. They are, 
Um, they are married. My son has children, and he he lives in this conservative little house where they do everything right. And I think I don't know how that happened because he had no example. He had a you know an abusive father, an alcoholic mother, and I don't know where this comes from. I guess um, you know I think of it as you know the grace of God. And so I want you to know that despite what I'm all telling you about these children and the way I behaved, I mean they turned out you know as two you know two wonderful you know productive adults um so anyway we adopt her and you know things just gradually got worse because i had like two i had two lives i had this life where i was at home and i was drinking you know you get up you know pretty soon you know i was i was drinking in the morning because you know just facing the day took a little courage and um i was had that life there where i was hiding you know hiding the liquor hiding it from my husband and then trying to do what i thought mothers should do so i would try to you know take them to school and i think for a while I worked in the school library, I took some, I took, oh my God, I took Cub Scouts around every Monday to a Cub Scout meeting, and I was always drunk. I mean, I did not want to go to Cub Scout meetings, and I did not, you know, the boys were noisy and disruptive, and and uh, I think probably was one of the first things I learned to be grateful for in AA, because I did not realize I was putting them in danger, And um, but, you know, we all survived, and so I had this life over here that I was trying to do what I thought mothers and, you know, should be doing and then the life over here where everything was like about hiding and uh, and it takes a lot of discipline I thought when I got to AA, it was a very disciplined person because it took a lot of discipline to keep a supply of alcohol in the house and um, and back in those days back in the Midwest I mean the stores weren't open on Sunday that you could get alcohol on Sunday if it was a voting day you couldn't get alcohol on a voting day so it took you know as time was going on and you know, it was requiring more and more alcohol to keep in the house, it took a lot of discipline. And uh, I tried to, you know, make sure that I always had a supply. And as, you know, as it went on, I kept it. It was in the car. It was, you know, in I don't know how many rooms of the house. It was in my sewing machine. I had a neighbor <laughs> who uh, had a key to my house, and I had like a half gallon of vodka in my sewing machine. And she never, <laughs> never said a word until I got sober. And she said, yeah, I always wondered why that vodka was in your sewing machine. But she never, never said a word to me about it. So, you know, there were things. Things, just bizarre things that were happening, and uh, things were not going well with my husband, and um, he would accuse me, he would accuse me of being drunk, and he would say, you know, I don't, you know, when we get home, when I get home from work tonight, we're going to talk about your drinking, and I thought, well, let's give him something to talk about, and so, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I'm for that. And so, but he would, he would, he would accuse me. He would say, I smelled funny. He would say, you know, you're slurring your words. You can't walk straight. What's the matter with you? And I would look right back at him and I would say, what are you talking about? You know, what is the matter with you? And I could look him straight in the eye and I think I believed it. And, um, I will tell you, you know, I was afraid of that man, but not enough that I, he could stop me from drinking. I just had to be more careful and a little bit more clever. And um, 
in the beginning, it's not so bad to, um, you know, try to sneak a bottle in here and there. But, you know, as my drinking progressed and I needed more, there was more and more I had to bring into the house. And I'm trying bigger containers so I don't have to go to the store so often. And um, and then it became like what kind of a woman, you know, would go to the store too often to get alcohol. And so I've made the rounds of like, you know, maybe this day, you know, you could go to the liquor store. And then maybe this day you would go to the drug store. This day you would go to a grocery store. And uh, towards the end of my drinking, I was buying like half gallons. So you go to the grocery store with a half gallon of, of vodka and some tomatoes and hope that the people are going to think that's your grocery shopping. <laughs> so um, I don't know who I was fooling. I thought I was fooling people. So then I started, things started happening, and I was having some health problems. And uh, I was having trouble with my stomach and... Um, um, that's when I made the switch. So I was having trouble with my stomach, saw the doctor, and I, he, of course, asked if you're drinking, and it's like, well, you know, I have a drink or two. I'm a martini drinker, don't you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, you know, that gin is really hard on your stomach. Why don't you try vodka? And so I, <laughs> so that was like my introduction to vodka, which I truly believe nobody could smell. I mean, it's clear. You know, surely nobody can smell that. And nobody, I don't remember anybody ever calling me on it. And when I got sober, I thought, what is the matter with you people? Didn't you smell me? And I, quite frankly, did not know what I smelled like until I came into AA. I mean, I had no idea about alcoholism. I didn't know what was happening to me. Um, and, and now I'm kind of jumping around a little bit. But it, when I was sober and I, I had a woman come to the house, we were going to go to a meeting together, and she walked in the house, and she reeked of alcoholism and uh, alcohol, and she was kind of stumbling around a little bit. She had spilled something on her, and I said, have you been drinking? <laughs> I said, you smell like, you know, alcohol, and she gave me the look that I think I must have given my husband, like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it was like, it gave me, started giving me a clue of what kind of a, you know, a wife and mother I was. And um, so anyway, so other things are happening. Now we've got some blackouts going on, and, and I'm not sure what's happening. And But I can tell you I love hearing stories about women, and they wake up and they don't know who they're sleeping with. I knew exactly who I was sleeping with. It was that same man <laughs> night after night after night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um and, but, it, but it, you know, again, it's just this bizarre because I knew I was, you know, time was going by and I didn't know what happened and there was nobody that I was going to ask. And, and yet, it, you know, again, it, you know, it doesn't bother me like, oh, is it from the alcohol? Oh, I should be worried. I'm losing track of time. I mean, it was like, well, gee, um, I wish I knew what happened. But, you know, again, it, it really didn't uh, cause anything any changes in my life. And then my husband decided I was a bored housewife and I needed to go to work. So I went to work and I got a little job where I only had to go to work three days a week. And, um, and I didn't have, you know, they didn't care which day. So, you know, if I was like really sick and really hungover, I just didn't go into work that day. And, uh, but the days were coming and the hangovers were getting worse and, and it was getting so hard to go into work. I mean, sometimes I really hate to even think of those days and how sick I was and how it felt to get up in the morning, try to get that vodka down in the morning just so you can like settle your stomach a little bit and, you know, not be, you know, not be shaking so much and go into work and then make a beeline for the bathroom, you know, more, you know, more vodka there and then trying to keep some in your desk drawer and hope nobody's going through that desk drawer. 
And it was it was a lot of work. And then finally, you know, towards the oh, then my next solution was it was my husband's fault. And if I did not have that man in my life, I wouldn't have to drink. And again, I believed it with all my heart. And so um, we got divorced, and you know, and that was almost like it it hastened the end of my drinking because he was the only one, like the adult, that really knew what was going on in that house. And he was gone, and there was nobody else to tell me anything. And all I can remember is, I mean, there was like a fall. I mean, I don't know how long that fog went on, but I couldn't have told you what was happening to my kids, but I can tell you what wasn't happening. We weren't going to parent-teachers conferences, and they weren't involved in sports and, you know, whatever normal kids are doing. I mean, they weren't doing any of that, but I couldn't have told you what they were doing. And um, I, uh, towards the very, very end, then I, um, I, I couldn't even get into work, and I... <clears throat> the truth is I hung on to that job because I was sleeping with my boss. And thanks to him, I was, you know, I kept the job. And then I got, uh, finally, um, I don't, you know, again, a lot of it is a fog, but I, but I ended up in a, in a hospital and then in a treatment center. And so I'm not really sure how some of that even all happened. I just know I was very, very sick. I wasn't going into work anymore. Um, I don't know what was happening with the kids, and I ended up in the hospital, and I'm not even sure, like, how that all happened. And in the hospital, I was diagnosed with um, dehydration, malnutrition, because I don't know about you, but I don't like to eat when I'm drinking. I mean, that ruins a drunk pretty quickly, and so um, I kind of used those coping mechanisms. And so I, too, like Chris, I was getting really, really skinny, and at some point, you know, you you don't weigh yourself. And... um, I was taken to the hospital, and then, and then they told me I was a chronic alcoholic. And I thought, how can he be a chronic alcoholic? Nobody, that seems a little extreme. Um, but I was, um, I was in the hospital, and then, and then I was taken to a treatment center. Nobody asked me if I wanted to go, and I didn't say, no, I don't want to go. I, I just went. But I'll tell you, I knew so little about alcoholism, and uh, that I tried. <laughs> I had a bottle. I snuck a bottle of booze into my luggage when I went into the hospital and the treatment center, and I was shocked to think that they would go through my luggage, and they did, and there was my bottle, which they took away, and, uh, and that was really scary, and, um, and so um, the, what I can tell you about the treatment center, I left there feeling really really pretty cocky because when I was in there, I, you know, I guess it was a good treatment center. Um, we were, but we had like, we had therapy, we had poems, we had medical terminology, we had, we had this chart. I'll never forget the chart that was the alcoholism chart. And it showed, it was like a, like a horseshoe and it showed, you know, your descent into alcoholism. Oh yeah, that's where I was going. And then down here, and then it was going to be, you know, your recovery is up here. And I had my little chart and I had all of this and then they told you, no, don't take the first drink. If you take the first drink, that's how you get drunk. And I thought that was the solution. I, you know, I had all the answers. I had all my little literature from, you know, from the treatment center. And I came home, and the day I got home, I drank. I mean, I got home, and here were the kids. They were back. And uh, <laughs> I shouldn't talk like that, but that's the way I felt at the time. It was awful. And um, and I had a house that I was supposed to be keeping. I was now supposed to go back to work, and it just seemed overwhelming. And now they're telling me, no, you can't drink. The one thing that always made me comfortable, they're saying you can't drink. And they also took away my medication, which when I first got here was like, I don't take any medication until I thought about the, the 
the Valium and the sleeping bellows and the antidepressants and the, but they were all prescribed by the doctor. And so, and they wouldn't let me have any of that either. So, you know, I, I was a pretty miserable character and I started drinking again. It really didn't last very long because very quickly I just couldn't do it anymore. I guess I'm kind of a wimp and, uh, people, you know, my family's looking at me now and they're watching me and my neighbors, you know, she knows what's going on. And, uh, it didn't take long for me to just uh, kind of give up. I, in the treatment center, they said, get a sponsor. I got a sponsor and, um, I want to make sure I talk about my sobriety. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, she, uh, they said, you know, get a sponsor, somebody who has what you want. And so I asked uh, Mary, and, uh, I still remember her name, and I asked Mary, and um, Mary had um, what I wanted, which was um, a boyfriend in her own business. And so I asked her to be my sponsor. She said yes, and you think, okay, job done. But I never called her. You know, certainly when you're drinking, you're not going to call her. And um, so... <laughs> When I finally did call her, and she, just like you would expect, she said, well, why didn't you call me? And I said, well, because I was going to drink. I mean, why would I call you? And um, I started very slowly with her. I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous and think, wow, I'm home. It was like, this is weird. And I thought for a while it was a cult. And, um, you know, people kept saying the same thing over and over, and then they would say, keep coming back. And I, and I, and actually one time, you know, early in my sobriety, I found a list of, like, cults. And I looked to see if AA was in there. And in case you're wondering, it's not. And, uh, and, um, and so, you know, I didn't, I did not come here and get comfortable. I didn't, you know, I didn't understand a lot. And some of the stuff that you were saying, like a higher power, I knew that meant God. And I, you know, I thought if you were raised like I was, you know, you wouldn't be, you know, whoopie doo, we got a God here. And, uh, so it took me a while and, it, and a couple of sponsors, I think, before I really got serious. And then I, I, w- I want to tell just a little bit about my sponsor, Glenda, because she was the one that, um, I made the, I think the most growth was through her. And that was um, because she had she had something that I wanted, which was a joy in her life, you know, laughter, and she and she had a spirituality about her, and I didn't have that, and so I asked her to be my sponsor, and then we started what I call like, getting serious, working with the steps, and uh, what I remember about her is that she made me laugh, and she helped me find a power greater than myself, and. Um, and I started out by hearing what maybe many of you have heard. She's like, can you believe that I believe? And I could see the way she lived, the way she acted, the way she talked, that she had something that I didn't have. And so we kind of went on this journey together. And she was so responsible for, you know, helping me with so many changes. And some of them, one of them I remember today, she never allowed me to feel sorry for myself. I was also kind of a whiny, cry, you know, in drunk, you know, and sober. Oh, poor me. And uh, she would never let me feel sorry for myself. And I can remember a couple of things where, you know, the one time I was, you know, came out of a meeting and I had locked my keys in my car. And it's like, oh, poor me, you know, oh, my God, my children at home. And she's, you know, she was like, be grateful. It's summertime. Be grateful there's not, you know, a foot of snow out here. And somebody around here will have a... Triple A account, and, and we'll get your car taken care of. It's like you know, just stop it. And then if I would get stuck in traffic, she'd say, "Well, be you know, be grateful that you're not part of it. You know, though that accident did not involve you, and so be grateful." And I just thought she never allowed me to feel sorry for myself, and what a gift that was. 
And, uh, you know, I kept her until I came out here at nine years sober. And, um, she, and she was just an amazing woman. And she is still, she's still in my life today, even though she's back in St. Louis. And um, I just, um, I just, I don't know, sometimes I just feel like, I, you know, I, I can't find the words to express, you know, what has happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. But I do like, I always like to go quickly, as quickly as I can, like through the steps, because they made the biggest impact in my life. And when I got sober and I felt like they were taking things away, you know, no, you can't drink. No, you're not supposed to take these pills. No, you're not supposed to do that. And I'm like, well, what do you have to offer me? And it was like the steps. And it's like the steps. I mean, really? <laughs> the steps? And um, and it took me, you know, I, I, you know, I just couldn't get it. And but as I, you know, as I see the steps today, like I think about, you know, step one being powerless over alcohol. It took me a while to understand that I was powerless. I thought, how can the one thing that gave me power, the one thing that allowed me to live comfortably, and now you're telling me that, you know, that that's powerless. And it, it took me a while. And actually, I had to do a lot of writing. Now, women I sponsor today, I don't make them do the writing. But I had to do writing about, you know, like what I did when I was drunk. And as I began to do that writing, I began to realize, you know, what I had done uh, when I was drinking. And it helped me to realize the powerlessness over alcohol. And I kind of lumped two and three together because they had to do with finding a higher power Great, you know, power greater than yourself, and also becoming, you know, to trust that power. And that way, and that was hard for me because I had just kind of given up when I had gotten here. I thought, you know, nothing ever. It was like this. Nothing ever turned out my way, you know. And I asked for all these things, and I didn't get them. And I tried to do everything the church told me, and I didn't get what I wanted. And um, you know, and I went with what Glenda told me. It's like, you know, can you believe that I believe? And then somewhere along the line, I was told I had a Santa Claus God. It's like I was very specific about what I wanted, my Santa Claus list. And when I didn't get it, it was like, well, you know, screw you. <laughs> I don't want Anyway, I'm supposed to. Anyway. Um, anyway, I was not happy. I'm not happy. So anyway, it took for me, it took a while for me. It had to change my attitude about, about a power greater than our, myself. And Glenda was, you know, huge uh, uh, instrument in helping me do that. And then finding one. And at one time she had, you know, she said, you know, can you believe that I believe? Yes, I can. And then she, she talked about her vision of, uh, you know, higher power. And she said, you know, a loving God, you know, I think, you know, he is a loving God, he is the father, we are his children, and it took me years to find that in the big book, and I'm like, she got that out of the big book, because it says, you know, he is the father, we are his children, but that was her concept that she passed on to me, and it's the one that I like to use today. When I talk about um, four and five, um, four, I think, was a turning point for me because when I did a fourth step, it changed my perception from everything that was done to me. My first fourth step was like, you know, my mother did this, my father did this, the nuns at school did this. You know, I was even mad at the government. I don't know what the government did to me, but I was mad. And so and when I'm doing the fourth step and, you know, getting some guidance with Glenda to change that perception from everything that was done to me to seeing what my part is in the, in the events that had happened in my life. And uh, that was, you know, that's significant and obviously still holds today. And then five represented to me the first time I trusted somebody. You know, I went with her 
uh, to do my fifth step, and I trusted her with all the stuff that I was going to tell her. And maybe to you it doesn't sound like it was very much. It's like, well, what did you ever do? But for me, I was hugely embarrassed with the kind of woman I had become, the wife I was, you know, the kind of mother I was. And I laid that, you know, out before her, and, and it was a huge relief for her to share with me some of the stuff that had gone on with her. And it was a huge, again, turning point that I finally trusted somebody in my life. And we got to six and seven, which she was happy to point out character defects to me, um, was also a, a turning point because up until that time, if you would have pointed out those defects of character to me, I would have been angry about that. And it's like, you know, I will be the judge, and, you know, I don't want you telling me about my character defects. But by that time, I learned that these character defects were what were causing me pain. I mean, and I also learned a lot of new words because, you know, when I got here, I was mad. That was about the one word I could tell you. But, in you know, after you're around here for a while, you learn resentment, anger, the seven and deadly sins, and I learned how they affected my life and not in a good way, and it was up to me to um, to try to act differently. And sometimes for me, you know, the simplest thing I can do with the character defects is I don't, you know, I act differently. And so that was significant that I could, you know, learn about the things in my life that were actually causing me pain. When we got to eight, oh, my gosh, well, the making the list is easy. I mean, you make your list, do-do-do-do-do, but when it comes to nine and you go to make these amends, it was... It was very difficult because I had excuses or reasons for a lot of them. And the only ones that were easy, the ones I wanted to get to right away for my children. And I wanted to take care of them right away. And then that's been a lifelong process. I mean, once you, um, you, you know, I've, I talk to them, and, and I, you know, I can't remember anymore what I said, but what has happened since then is try to be the mother today that I could not be to them then. And that'll be like a lifelong process. But then I had my parents. Now, my parents could not even bring themselves to say Alcoholics Anonymous. It was where you go, those meetings, you know, what they couldn't even say the words. And so for a while I thought, well, you know, you don't have to make amends. And my sponsor assured me that, yes, I did, and I could I could make amends to them without mentioning the words Alcoholics Anonymous. And so what I did was I, um, my, my job, according to her, was to, um, you know, talk to them about the kind of daughter that I was, you know, the pain that I had caused them, and I was not going to live like that anymore. And, uh, and it helped up to a point, but, you know, there were some things that um, even though I tried to do it, we never got to be, you know, like the cutesy little mom where we have lunch or anything. I mean, that just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. And um, I was kind of sad about that. And, um, and sometimes I tell you these things because, um, early on, you know, I would hear people from the podium and it sounded like they had made their amends and everything was great. Yes, you know, I come home now and I help the family and they love me and I love them. And, and it didn't work out like that for me. It was just, I don't know what it was, but it didn't work out like that for me. And so even though I made my amends, it was just kind of icky sometimes. And, uh, and I remember in the beginning of my sobriety, I would tell my mom, um, that, uh, that, you know, I said, oh, you know, I'm celebrating, you know, so many years of sobriety today, and sobriety today, and she'd say, oh, yeah, I remember you ruined our anniversary. And so, mm-hmm. so um, you know, we stopped. So they never, they never came to a meeting. They never saw me take a cake, and that's just the way that it was. Um, so anyway, um, oh, and then the last one I have to tell you is my husband. It's like that first husband. And um, he... 
Oh, it took me years to make amends to him because I just thought I couldn't. And I said I wouldn't. When I first got here, I said I will never make amends to that man. But if you hang around here long enough and you see people recovering and they're doing their amends, and I became like the door opened a little bit, and it's like, well, you know, how will I ever do that? And they said pray for willingness. So, all right, so then that's my next step, pray for willingness. So I did that. And then finally my last my last hope was I said, do I have to mean it? And I was told, I was told, no, you don't have to mean it, but you have to do it. But I will tell you, (laughs) but you need to know that when I made amends to him, I did mean it. Because by that time, I'd been around long enough to know what kind of a wife I had become. And I knew that, you know, it was not about the things he did to me. It was like the kind of wife I was, you know, that I didn't bathe, you know, I didn't brush my teeth. I wasn't cleaning house. I wasn't a mother, you know, and I did. I did smell and I did do all those things that he accused me of. And so I was able to make those amends to him and, and I meant it. So, um, uh, 10 personal inventory in the beginning, that was a big deal. I had to think carefully at night. Oh my gosh, how was my day? And now it just comes natural. I can go to bed at night and I know and you know I know unfortunately it's usually my current husband who has to you know I will owe the amends to because he's the closest to me and I'll give you a little hint Uh, so when you have a like an abusive husband it's always about him you know what he did what he did what he did never have to look at yourself well my second husband is what you would call a good man very nice good man and he makes me look bad because now now I'm supposed to be you know I'm supposed to be doing all these things and he's like one step ahead of me and I was like oh that's hard so that's the downside of marrying a good man Uh, but anyway (laughs) anyway um Anyway, so, but it does come easier now. When I go to bed at night, I know exactly what kind of day I have had and who I owe amends to. Eleven taught me how to pray. Pray only for knowledge of your will for me and the power to carry it out. And it simplified that for me, kept me away from the Santa Claus God, and made me realize that sometimes, you know, that the power to carry it out, sometimes there are things that I know I have to do, and I just don't think I'm strong enough to do it. If it's an amends, if it's facing somebody I don't want to face or doing something I don't want to do. And so the word, you know, the power to carry it out, I think, is powerful. Um, Twelve, having had the spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, the spiritual awakening for me has been like going through these steps and uh, adopting this new way of life. And the new way of life is like totally different. Uh, the spiritual experience talks about we are different feeling, our feelings and outlook on life, you know, will change. And we, we will do things, you know, that we didn't think that we could do in the past. And that has happened for me. And the one thing is, like, I didn't even touch upon when I was drinking, I always used to just want to die. Please let me die. And I was never suicidal because I thought I would screw it up. But I thought, you know, that, you know, death could descend upon me. You know, death would just descend upon me. And I don't have that anymore. I mean, my days are full. My life is full. I had no idea what would be ahead of me in life, that I would move to a different state, that I would get married again, that I would have these years of sobriety. I never asked for, oh, please let me stay for 30 three years it's like you just you know went one day at a time you know one thing at a time one step at a time and you know so here I am tonight and I'm telling you that I am one happy camper I have always done Alcoholics Anonymous in all the years that I've been sober and I guess I'm a lucky one that I haven't had to do anything else and I have a, a life today that's beyond my wildest dreams and I think it's time for me to sit thank you for listening thank you.